0: It is great to be back with you guys. My name is uh, Ben Coppage. I'm the campus minister with Reform University Fellowship at New Mexico State. And uh, Anna and I have been getting to come down here and worship with you uh, for the past couple of years. We're glad to be back. If I haven't met you yet, I would love to today. One of the things that we have been talking about all fall at RUF up in New Mexico State is how the gospel if it sinks down deep into us, all the way to our bones, all the way into our heart, how it transforms our relationships. The passage this morning out of James chapter 4 is, I'll warn you, it's a very convicting passage. But it is such a beautiful, refreshing passage as well. And you're going to have to work hard to see that. And so we'll work at it together. But before we do, I wanted to tell you a story to get us thinking along those lines. Throughout the year of 2009, hundreds of centrifuges at the most secretive and heavily guarded nuclear facility in Iran began to catastrophically break apart. Almost a thousand over the course of that year began to spin out of control, began to disassemble themselves catastrophically, irreparably. Uh, Centrifuges are some of the most precise and refined technology human beings have invented. Also some of the most expensive and so this was a big deal. The problem was this. Not a single time that these centrifuges began to break apart were there any warnings at all. All of the systems, all of the monitoring equipment was telling the engineers sitting at the monitors everything's normal. The temperatures are normal. Operating rotational speeds are normal. Environmental conditions, they're normal. And yet this continued to happen and nobody could stop it for a whole year. And it would actually be another couple of years before the Iranians or the world would figure out what was destroying what they had spent decades to build. Some of you might know what was going on because I'm, I would not be surprised if some of you <laughs> helped develop what was going on. What was happening... Is somebody had infiltrated their system again? The most protected, secretive systems uh, there are. Somehow, somebody had infected and infiltrated that system with malicious code. And so here's what was happening: this this system, or this uh, this worm, this computer worm, which is called Stuxnet, was developed by someone, and it once it kind of penetrated the system, it would just sit there in the background, hidden beneath a labyrinth of complexity so that it could not be detected. And all it did for several months or almost a year is it just stayed there and it recorded all of the normal operating numbers, all of the normal operating data. It just recorded that and it learned what a normal day at this plant was like so that when the day came where the operators of this code wanted to inflict damage, on this nuclear plant it would be doing two things at the same time it would be simultaneously sending instructions to these centrifuges to start speeding up at speeds that they were never designed to speed at and then immediately stopping and then speeding up at at just outrageous speeds and then stopping and repeating that until they would literally just like your car engine just breaks down and it doesn't work it explodes but at the same time, it was sending signals to all of the monitoring equipment that everything's normal. It was just spitting back all of that data that it had been learning for months. And so the first sign of trouble was an explosion. And they couldn't figure this out. It goes without saying that the enemy in the camp is always the most dangerous enemy because you, it's hiding in plain sight. You can't see it, right? Enemies are easy to detect and neutralize or attack when they're wearing a uniform and you see them across the battlefield. But what do you do when the enemy is deeply embedded in your camp, hidden in plain sight, causing destruction by the minute? The destruction continues unless you can identify the enemy and eradicate the enemy. And this is the task that would face uh, the Iranians in this moment. Uh, I, I know a human soul and a silicone circuit board are quite different, but they do share this in common. Both can be hacked. Both can harbor an enemy hiding in plain sight. Both can allow destruction to happen while data is coming up to your mind or your conscience that says everything's normal. Everything's fine. James 4 is a similar picture of that nuclear facility in Iran. People like us who receive normal data, everything's great, while something deeply, deeply embedded in our hearts is off and is causing destruction. Now I need to warn you, the passage we're about to read, it is written to Christians. Because when I read this, something in you, if you are a Christian, you've been around church, something in you will probably, a red flag will pop up and you say, James couldn't possibly be talking to believers People who are alive, people who have been regenerated. He can't possibly be talking about Christians. But he is. This is James, the brother of Jesus. He is writing to his congregation, his people in Jerusalem, Christians. And he's warning them, and he's also encouraging them. And so we need to know that this is a word to us, not just to our neighbors or people around us. This is to people in the church. And so uh, this is the word of the Lord from James chapter 4. Verse 1 through 10, it's in your, on your sheet if you want to read along with me. We'll read this, we'll pray, and then we'll spend some time talking about it. James starts with a question to his people. He says, hey, what causes these fights? What causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Is it not this? That your passions are at war within you? You desire and you don't have, so you kill to get it. You covet, but you can't obtain it, and so you fight and you quarrel. You don't have because you don't ask. When you do ask, you do not receive it because you ask wrongly. To spend it on your own passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it's to no purpose that the Scripture says God yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us? But He gives more grace. God gives more grace. Therefore it says God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Let's pray. Our God, what we just sang is always true of us, but a passage like this makes us remember it better. That we are needy. And that you alone can meet us in our need. And help us and make us into the people that you have redeemed us to be. Jesus, we thank you that in the midst of very hard things to read and to believe about ourselves, there are very beautiful things to read and believe about you. We thank you that you are the way this passage pictures you as. A jealous pursuing, relentless lover of your bride. This morning, we are here to meet with you, not to talk about ideas, not to talk about you as if you were not here dwelling with your people through your spirit. So would you open our eyes, open our ears and soften our hearts that we might sense the presence of our husband and our God pleading with us Speaking to us, convicting us, and making us courageous. We ask this all in your name, Lord. Amen. So, there's three things I want to talk about just to kind of help you follow along with where we're going. The first is the smoke of our relational conflict, the second is the fuel or the fire, and the third is the exit strategy. This kind of, James talks about this in a linear fashion the smoke first, then the fuel or the source for this, and then the exit strategy of how we get out of this when we're caught up in it but I want to ask you the same question James asked his people which is this how do you answer his question because he starts with a question he says this week with the quarrels the conflicts the resentment the avoidance the cold shouldering those moments that your buttons were pressed that you rolled your eyes that you sighed that you honked that you tailgated what caused that? What caused that? That's James's starting question. Questions usually get deeper than declarations. So James starts with a question before he starts speaking to his people. But where did our conflicts come from this week? There's a theme to how we answer that question. Take whatever I just said, the avoidance, the, the cold shouldering, the internal prosecution of another person, or the outright explosions between you and another person. We have a theme to how we answer James' question. And it's, it starts with this. Any pronoun other than I, right? <clears throat> it starts with he did this, she did that, they did this, you did this. Why are they doing that? But those sentences, those, questions, those answers to the question of what causes fights and quarrels among you rarely begin with I. They usually begin with something outside of me. And James would start us at a place of of realizing that if we're still in a mode of circumstance blaming, the lights are still out. not saying you're not a Christian. James isn't saying you're not a Christian. He's saying you're deceived. The lights haven't come on for you yet in your conflict, in your relationships, if we're blaming these blow-ups, these conflicts on external factors to us. He's not minimizing the severity of some of these conditions that are just making life very difficult and complicated, you know the book of James, right? He talks about the suffering. He starts his book talking about count it as pure joy when you suffer trials of various kinds. James isn't an insensitive pastor who's just like, buck up and pull yourself together. This is a man who empathizes with our suffering, but he says we need to be very careful when it comes to conflict with other people or with groups of people be careful where your finger points first. The places we tend to blame these on in our deception are circumstances. The insurance company misbilled me again, and so I spent 45 minutes on the phone with the operator. That's why I cussed her out. <clears throat> the insurance company, the situation. I take no responsibility for what I did. Ori blame it on her moods. I didn't get much sleep last night. That's why I snapped at my wife in the morning. Or that's why I was short with my kids all day. Again, I'm not saying these are illegitimate things. Yes, they make life more difficult. Yes, they're trials of various kinds. But are they the place that this conflict comes from? Or are they the the context that this conflict comes in? Personality, I hate drama. Or I'm type A, get over it. I like things done the right way the first time. Or I'm type B. (laughs) <laughs> stop pushing your type A efficiency on me. I have a loose relationship with time, whatever. And we blame it on others. She's just insecure or he's just an argumentative guy. But James wouldn't, doesn't let us answer with those answers. James would have us pointing our finger of blame in a different place. And he would have us start by saying, I'm upset because I didn't get what I want. And I couldn't handle not getting what I want. That's why I rolled my eyes. That's why I gave you the silent treatment. That's why I blew up at you. That's why I cut you down. That's why I cut you off or tailgated you. Because I can't handle not getting what I want. And I fell apart. I came unglued. If that's where our mind is going in the midst of these conflicts, James is is saying yes. Yes. Yes, you're getting warmer, you're getting warmer. They say a proper diagnosis is half the cure. It's the same with this stuff. Once we start looking in the right place, we can actually get someone. Here's the point. James says there's war around us because there's war inside of us. There's conflict in your marriage, in your parenting, with your coworkers, with your neighbors, with our culture because there's conflict inside of us. And it has opportunities when these aggravations or agitations happen to pop out and to say hi, and we get to see it. Uh, if, you're a, if you're a fan of a guy named Paul David Tripp, he's a, he's a pastor in Philadelphia, a counselor, a writer. I think he was the first place I encountered this illustration. But have you heard of the illustration of a, a person, imagine I had a big bottle of water up here and the top was off, and I shook that bottle of water, and I asked you, why did water fall all over the floor and get all over me? There's a couple of possible, possible answers, right? There's uh, the first answer of, well, there's water on the floor because you shook the bottle. But shaking a bottle doesn't magically make water appear and fall everywhere. If I had an empty bottle and shook it, you can shake it all your life. No water's going to come out. The correct answer, why water got all over the floor and me and you and splattered everywhere is because there was water in the bottle to begin with, Right? We'll talk in a few minutes about how Jesus, in his shaking moments, agitated moments, annoying moments, nothing ever came out except love for God and love for his neighbors. But when we get shaken, a lot comes out because a lot is inside of us. And that's what James's point is. Is these things that he says are inside of us, this love of the world, these passions and these desires. When the slow driver's in front of you, Or your husband's late again. Or you're short with your wife and that stuff comes out. James says it's because water was already inside of us. Conflict was already inside of you. That's why conflict came out when you got shaken. And so where do we go from here? Well, first I think, slow down with me and appreciate the helpfulness of this stuff. If we have this category and kind of the, this is how we begin to interpret these situations when they pop up in our life, I think it already is helpful to us. We're already moving down the road towards mercy and towards grace. Here's why. Life goes at a 90 miles an hour, right? Depending on your stage of life right now, whatever it is, something in your life feels like a freight train just speeding through. And it happens so quickly that we don't have time to kind of push pause on life, slow down, think about it. And respond. What normally happens is this. A trigger happens. An emotional response occurs. And ideally, we probably think, well, I shouldn't have responded that way. So the trigger happens. You're the boss and that that employee is late again. Or there's a family blow up or your kids push your buttons or something. The trigger happens. You respond in a way that... You realize after the fact, I shouldn't have responded that way. I shouldn't have tailgated that guy. I shouldn't have honked. I shouldn't have raised that particular finger in that particular moment. And we, we feel bad about it. And as far as we get is, oh, I'm a Christian. Like, that was wrong. That was sin. I shouldn't. Next time, I won't do that. And we try harder. So notice, notice the, 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 the linear flow there. Trigger. I'm aware of my emotion. I feel bad for that and try to fix it. But notice what's not being dealt with. <laughs> Everything is not being dealt with. All we're dealing with is is surface level observations of the situation because emotions are the first responder of relationships. Emotions are the first responder of life. They're first on the scene. You don't have to call 911 for your emotions to show up and tell you how to feel. They're there and they don't ask your permission. They're there and they're loud. And so most of us in our conflicts, all we're doing is just, we feel ambushed by these emotions and we're like, ah! and we just act out of them and at best we begin to push back at them later. But um, now we have a better idea of where these emotions might be coming from, where these reactions uh, might be coming from. And I think it helps us get beneath the surface to what's driving them. We get to see into our hearts in those moments if we don't if we're still in this pattern of trigger happens i get mad i feel bad for being mad and try to change Um, the deception continues and the delusion continues the lights continue to remain off because you're stuck with you and all your own native resources to try to fix your situation and this is why you can be have been a christian for 50 years and find that your temper hasn't changed at all in 50 years, or that quickness to argue and defend yourself can still be there as or more powerful than it was in the past, even as you see maturity in other areas of your life. This is how that happens. We've never been engaged in a battle that's been going on in our hearts. so It's been going, and war always spreads, right? War isn't this thing that says, okay, I'll stay over here in the corner, every conflict happening in the world right now is spreading pushing out taking new ground the stuff inside of me is spreading and wanting new territory for itself and so it's incumbent upon us to fight before we push on to where does this smoke come from let me let me ask you have you heard gospel yet have you heard anything good? Have you heard good news? Have you seen or sensed the mercy and the tenderness of your God in the, some of the ugliest places in our lives? Have you heard it yet? Because we've talked about it. You've got to be able to see it if this passage isn't going to crush you. How do we see it? Well, the Lord is in this passage pushing the button on the smoke detector of your soul. <laughs> He's pushing the button until it starts screaming and saying something's going on. There's smoke. He's saying where there's smoke, there's fire. That is mercy, right? If your house is on fire and and your smoke detector's not working, someone comes in and shouts, wake up! Is that mercy? Yes. So don't see your God coming at you to stomp you. See Him coming to warn you. And to wake you up for what he continues to say. The second thing that we want to talk about, not just the smoke. We recognize the smoke and we we sense, okay, maybe this is coming from somewhere. So where is it coming from? Where does James say that these conflicts, this tension, this resentment pops up from? Well, he says in verse 1, and he continues this throughout the passage, that these things are coming from the passions that are at war within us. In verse 2, he talks about desires, desires. In verse 3, he comes back to the word passions, passions, desires, cravings, wants. And these aren't just benign desires like I want to eat at Olive Garden after church kind of desire. These are crazy, strong, compelling, driving passions and loves and desires. Loves so strong that you will kill to get them. Not making this up. This is why James says, You do not have, and so you covet, and you cannot obtain, and so you fight and quarrel. He says right before that, You desire, and you don't have, and so you murder. I don't know if the congregation in Jerusalem had experienced a Christian killing another Christian. Perhaps, probably not. He's speaking figuratively. This is what he means. If I am so in love, If the desire and the passion that's driving my life is my reputation and your respect for me, um, then me slandering another person is nothing. If, If my reputation is threatened in your eyes, it's nothing to me to give you a little bit of a tidbit of information on that other person who's saying, threatening things about me, to let you know, you really shouldn't trust what this person's saying, here's why. You know, they're really, they're really, this is a trashy person. You think what they're saying about me is true, let me tell you something about them. I'm willing to murder and to kill and to take the life of another person through my words so that I can get what I want, which is your respect or your adoration to think that I'm awesome. If what I love most is comfort, if that's what drives my life, if that's the passion that I want, the desire that I crave more than anything else, It is nothing to me to kill my family or to take the life of my family to get what I want. And so if I come home every day and ignore my wife and my kids or ignore my husband and my kids so I can turn on the TV and decompress and disappear and become invisible, I'm totally willing to make that compromise. James says you desire and you do not have and so you take life to get it. These are desires that are so strong, we will kill to get them. And we'll have a trail of collateral damage in our lives. He goes on in verse 3. There's two more things where it gets a little bit worse before it gets better, so hang with me. He says in verse 3, he uses this word passions repeatedly and desires. And and the Greek word here, I don't often quote Greek unless it sounds just like the English word. The Greek word here is hedonai or hedonai, which is where we get our word for hedonism. So it's not just James saying your desires are at war within you. What he's saying is your hedonism, our hedonistic pleasures are driving us and are at war with one another the way baby birds are at war with each other when mama bird comes with a worm. Which of us can get food? Which of us can come out and get nourishment? It's our hedonistic pleasures. If you don't know what hedonism is, here's a a quick definition. Hedonism is a a life, it's a life of self-pleasing. It's life all about me, not about God, not about you, not about others, but all about me. My desires, my pleasures, my comfort, being satisfied at the first inkling of it. James looks in our heart, and he, James looks in his heart. James looks in every human heart, apart from Jesus Christ, the true human, and says, this is what's there. This is what comes out when life shakes and agitates. We cling to our way at the expense of everybody else's. And so these are the hedonistic, self-serving desires that war in our heart. Here's a story. I want to give you two quick stories, one from my life, one that maybe resonates with your life, to kind of make sure we're keeping this down to earth. Um, I've known for a long time that one of the loves that I have that is beautiful to me and I will do just about anything to get this is control and uh, about eight or nine years ago I was doing a counseling class online and it was the end of the semester we had a term project that we had to do called a self-counseling project which is basically this you have to identify some kind of pattern of sin or struggle or temptation in your life and the project was designed to kind of slow time down so that we can see beneath the surface at what's really going on and think through in a tangible way what faith and repentance and the Lord's mercy in that struggle will look like, okay? So, I'm, that's what's on my mind. I'm in the middle of writing this paper. It's probably due in a couple of days. And I am changing the fuel filter on my Ford F-150. And so I'm out in my driveway and I'm sl- lodged up underneath my truck. And I am trying to get this filter off. Now, a fuel filter is right in between a 25-gallon tank full of gas and your engine. And so to replace it, you have to take the line off that goes to the engine and the line off that has 25 gallons of gasoline on the other side of it. And so I'm stuck up under there. I've got the tools that I think I need for the job, and I take the, wire, the lines off. I clamp them, and I take the two wires off, and one of the clamp on the fuel tank end comes off. And again, I'm stuck under there. I can't move, and I only have the tools I thought I needed for this, and 25 gallons of gas begins to bathe me. And I I was able to stop it probably after five or ten gallons of gas completely soaked me from head to toe, and it kept coming. And here's how I responded. I lost it. I'll spare you the details. if you're a person who loses it, too, maybe afterwards we can talk more uh, graphically about what that looked like. But I lost it, and I was cussing like a sailor, and I, it doesn't help that I had a temper problem anyway, and still do. But I came unglued, and I'm doing what you do when stuff breaks. I'm blaming the people who made it, the country that manufactured it, everything. <laughs> underneath the truck, and I but he, An interesting thing happened because of the project I was working on. I had my wits about me a little bit more than normal. And in that moment, I started crying after my blow-up. Thankfully, just figuratively, because I was covered in gasoline. The Lord spared my life that day. But I started weeping, and I think it was a third out of frustration with myself. Am I 25, and this is still how I react to a little thing, like a clamp coming loose? It's as if the world is ending. Maybe another third of it was just weariness over my own sin and how much of a grip it had on my heart, how much I loved control. But the other third was because I saw in that moment Jesus by his spirit coming alongside of me, covered in gasoline, and offering his arm and a way out of this slavery to control I saw him in that moment meet me underneath my truck and give me a way out of this hedonistic slavery of Ben thinking that he's God and losing it and cursing everything when things don't happen the way I expected them to happen. I went under that truck with divine expectations of how exactly this repair was supposed to go. And when it didn't go my way, I got upon my throne and cursed everything. Jesus met me in that moment, gave me his arm, and offered me a way out. Because for people who love control, you are terrified of unpredictable annoyances. And that exposed the war in my heart that became a war underneath a truck. Maybe one that might resonate closer home to you if you most desire and crave acceptance. What are you most going to hate? What is going to set you off more than anything else? It'll be seemingly little things that are big for you like not getting included on an invite list. You find out about the party a week later or you find out about it on Facebook. Why who was going to tell me about? It? I never heard about this. Or you're not noticed. Or someone forgets your name that you think should remember it. I'm not saying these things aren't painless. But if you most love being adored and noticed, you will hate and you will begin to shoot, take shots at people who keep you from getting what you want. Even if it's a cold war where no real shots are fired, but it's just an internal resentment. The more we love the things that we're most after, these hedonistic drives, whether it's control or comfort or pleasure, the more in love with them that we are, the more sensitive we are about them, the, the, the more tuned the Richter scale is, the tiniest things can set you off. I told you two more things and then it gets better. Well, the last thing before it gets better is this. We don't even know that these drives and desires are happening in our hearts. We are that system in Iran that's getting data back that says everything is fine, even though this kind of stuff is happening in our hearts today. James goes on a little bit further and he talks about you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. What he's saying here is that we pray to the Lord God to give us these desires and these passions and these cravings. They pop up in our prayer lives before the throne of God in His holiness and His purity and His love for His people. We drag in with us these hedonistic desires, these passions, and we begin to petition him and plead with him to give us these things, which means we think they're legitimate things. So we pray for them. He says we ask with the wrong motives so that we might spend what God would give us on our own pleasures, on our own selfish motives. And God delights To say no to so many of our prayers, not because he is capricious or vindictive, but because he loves you. Because he will not bankroll your self-destruction. And he will not bankroll his glory being diluted and pushed aside. Here's why. James says these inner idolatries, he calls it friendship with the world, and he says... If you want to be a friend with the world, it will put you in conflict with God. This is a no-man-can-serve-two-masters moment. You can serve one and hate the other, or you can serve this one and hate this one. But you can't serve both. If you serve both, and he presumes that we are, he calls it adultery. And my question to you is, isn't that overkill, James? Do you have to take it to the adultery word? Why don't you just say, you sinful people or you ignorant people, why say adulterous people? Did that catch you off guard when I read the passage earlier? You're like, whoa, this just got really serious. Because the older you get, the more the word adultery undoes you. And I don't use this lightly, and James didn't use this word lightly either, because this has touched some of you in the most personal and painful way. But even if it hasn't, It is a word that the older you get, the more the hair on the back of your head stands up when you hear the word adultery because you know the catastrophe of a third person coming into a relationship and what that does. A third lover moves into our relationship with God and also into our relationship with one another. Take the husband and wife example. Can you imagine a scenario where I plead with Anna to let another person move into our house? Say, I love you, but I love her too. Could you please just let me have this? Friends, this is unsettling to hear. I don't say this flippantly. James intends to unsettle you. James wants this to put a knot in our stomach because it is adultery that's happening. Not, sorry I blew up again. Sorry I got impatient. James James talks about adultery. What he presumes is that you are married to your God. Christianity isn't about ideas. Christianity isn't even about a lifestyle. Christianity is the living God who pursues and marries his people who joins himself by, to his people. And so these kind of quarrels that maybe a few minutes ago seemed to be surface-level annoyances, they reveal deep adulteries and shifting of allegiances in our hearts that James would have us take seriously. Imagine putting two people in the same marriage or the same house or the same workplace or the same church, and both of their hearts are set on their own pleasures. Both of their hearts are most committed to getting their way. And it's like you put a freight train here on the tracks and a freight train here and they're facing each other. And you say, push the accelerator. The alarm goes off in the morning. It's time to wake up. And both trains start to careen forward. What do you think happens in our marriages, in our parenting, in our jobs, in our churches? James is saying, hey, church people, what causes the fights and quarrels among us? It's these things. And collisions happen. So the final thing we were going to talk about is an exit strategy. Where is the gospel? Well, again, you've already heard gospel. Don't miss that. Because if you do, you're going to feel beaten up without a way out of this. We've already heard gospel mercy. God tells us the truth when our hearts report false data to our brains. God gets in there and he says, there's a virus, there's a virus. Here's what's happening. And he sets the smoke detector off. And we say, Father, thank you. Thank you, Father, for caring for me enough to tell me the truth. He uses everyday unanswered prayers, everyday annoyances and conflicts, even unspiritual things like changing fuel filters to get at your heart and to draw you back and to love you. That's, that's grace. And he gives us an exit ramp of repentance which means that even our worst, most discouraging relationships, the most hopeless relationships in your life, with the living God present in them, means they're redeemable. and means they are actually a way towards purity of heart, towards repentance and faith. I don't want you to be primarily discouraged by this passage. It's ironic and weird to say this, But can you hear words this hard to hear and leave this place actually encouraged, more courageous, more ready, more in love with the Lord? James doesn't want you walking out those doors in a few minutes with you. He wants you leaving with the Lord Jesus Christ and his spirit who yearns over you jealously. Samuel Rutherford says, My needs are my greatest riches, for it is they that carry me to Christ. Charles Spurgeon, another old pastor from England, says, I have learned to kiss the wave that knocks me upon the rock of ages. Can you learn to kiss and bless the hardest places in your life? Because you know that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are using those places to liberate you, to free you, and to let you free other people. Could we let these relational needs, this turmoil, actually bring us to Christ? So really quickly, what is the explicit gospel here? In verse 6, James says, the Spirit of Jesus yearns over us jealously. He yearns over us jealously. So what does this mean? It means that God is a husband who does love his people with an allegiance. That he is not willing to share you with anybody or anything. The way you would know that my marriage to Anna was in a very precarious and bad spot if she was okay with me flirting with other women. The more she loves me, the more jealous she is over me. The more jealous she is over me, the less willing to share me with anybody else she is. Do you know that your God loves you so fiercely that it affects Him when we flirt with the world? That is how much He loves you. It affects Him. And He will not... Share us. Galatians 5 also says that God is also at war. The desires of the Spirit are at war with the desires of the flesh. This is why the Spirit yearns over you jealously. He yearns against the very desires that pull us away from Him. Verse The second part of verse 6, James goes on, he says, God gives more grace because there's more need after you hear a passage like this. Where sin increases, grace increases towers over it like a boxer in the ring who's just knocked out the other guy feel your soul stirring up as your god leaves you with more than just conviction but he stands tall over these battles which means that if we begin to respond to these hard places in our relationship with faith and repentance we begin to change We begin to walk away from these car crashes, less and less scathed and hurt by them. So next time this happens to you, what do you think differently? What do you feel differently? What do you say to yourself? What do you do this afternoon when that trigger comes? I love the book of James. I love James as a pastor because he never leaves things abstract. He says, verse 5, know that God is jealous for your heart. Know that he will not share you in that moment. Verse 7, submit yourself to God or subject yourself to God. Why this? How is this helpful in the next moment of trigger? Because he says, if he's saying to subject yourself to God, what does it presume? Where does it presume you were before? (laughs) God is here and we're here. And he's saying, Friends, you have made life. I have made life all about me. And it's not about you. It's not about you. It's not about you. Nothing is about you. We can smile when we hear that, right? You know the misery of life being all about you. Submit yourselves to the living God again, climb off the throne. You are not equipped to govern. You were not intended to rule the world. Climb down and see your father sitting there, ruling on your behalf for your good and for his people's good. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Those are big words. Spend your own time unpacking that. We don't have time for it, but resist the devil. Know who you're married to. He is the devil killer. He is the one who gives orders to the devil. So James is saying, don't you take orders from the devil. Remember who you're married to. And he says, draw near to God. This is not an A causes B relationship. This is as you do A, you see B already happening. As you draw near to God, like the prodigal started to walk back, he sees a trail of dust coming towards him. Draw near to God and you will find him already beating you to the punch already drawing near to you because it is the Lord who gives conviction and draws you back. The final thing might be a little confusing to you. He says, weep and mourn, turn your laughter into joy, cleanse your hands and purify your hearts. What James is saying is, don't put on an act. Don't like cover yourself up in sackcloth and repent. He's not calling you to ritualism. He's saying, wake up. On the interstate of hedonism, stop driving past exit ramps thinking that you can get off later. Get off. He's giving us a picture of a true, broken hearted, humble repentance. The kind of repentance that happens in the traffic jam that gets beyond why are these people doing what they're doing? And gets you to a place of, Father, I'm in love with the world You are sovereign. If you wanted me to get home at a certain time today, I'd be home already. But you have me here to work on my heart, to free me from this slavery, to give me peace to know that you are God. Forgive me, Lord. That's what James would have us do in those moments. We end with this. Should you expect any change? Even if you've been a Christian for 50 years or one year, should you expect any change? Absolutely. Absolutely. To the extent that we wake up to this, absolutely. But I want you to leave with hearts full of joy because of this. Every time Jesus Christ was shaken, nothing came out except what pleased the Father. And he knew that when you were shaken, evil would come out. And so was He when he was shaken in the wilderness, outside of the wilderness, in the garden, on the cross... Only what came out was love of God and love of his neighbor because he is jealous for his people. Your record of repentance from your hedonistic pleasures is Jesus' record. Your righteousness is his righteousness. So please don't leave here thinking, man, I have so much to do and I'm so far behind and I've got to do so much work before God will find me acceptable and pleasing again. No, you don't. You already have a record of repentance. And it's perfect. It is not lacking anything. So you go out knowing that you have the rest of your life, the rest of this day, all the space in the world to learn how to repent. To learn how to leave our mistresses. That we might cling more closely to our husband. The Lord Jesus Christ. You have all the space and all the time in the world because you are already righteous. You are already purchased and already married. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you and your mercy have come to redeem your people from yourself. You have married your people. You love your bride. You will not share her. And we love you more because we see you, even in an exposing passage like this, pursuing us and loving us and caring for us. And so, Lord, we thank you We bless your name for your jealous love of your bride. We ask this in your name. Amen.